0: This podcast brought to you by the Information Architecture Institute. Through education, advocacy, services, and social networking, the IAI has 1,400 members from 80 countries demonstrating the value of information architecture to the world at large. By the IDEA Conference. IDEA brings together the world's foremost thinkers and practitioners, sharing the big ideas that inspire, along with practical solutions for the ways people's lives and systems are converging to affect society. And by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesandarrows.com about slash participate to be a part of your pure written journal. And special thanks to Aksher, Moray, and iRise for their sponsorship of Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the Idea Conference. We're all tired of the hype around innovation. Everyone claims to be doing it, but more often than not, the results are underwhelming. Most of us aren't on specialized teams and we can't innovate in isolation from the chaos of our daily work. Partner at Normative, a Toronto-based design strategy studio, Matthew Milan, talks about his work with Michael Dia, developing the Innovation Parkour Framework, how they're developing the practical approaches for training people to become better innovators, and he discusses how the pursuit of creating a prepared mind can lead to innovation mastery. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers.
1: Matthew's a man, here we go. Have at it, Matthew. <laughs> it is my phone, by the way. Uh, so people can hear me? Great. So uh, first of all, uh, i like to thank uh, the Institute and the IDEA committee for having me uh, and giving me an opportunity to uh, say a bunch of really ridiculous things to a bunch of people for 45 minutes. I'm looking forward to this once again. Uh, I'm just going to get this right out of the way. Um, You got five seconds, and I'm going to take it down. What I really want to do, though, is there's someone else uh, that I want to thank. This is uh, one of my clients. Uh, They're a Montreal-based startup, Um, and today we actually had a full day of field research studied uh, field research studies set up, and when. Russ phoned me, I uh, said, well, i got to check with my client. And the uh, client was gracious enough to let me reschedule a whole day of field studies. So uh, they're hiring a uh, UX uh, designer, by the way. And if you want to uh, work with a company that's basically spent the last year trying to integrate the design process into every part of what they do, uh, this is a good guy to talk to. So props for uh, my friend Alex for allowing me to be here today. This is my company, uh, Normative. You've got that for five seconds. I'm going to get these out of the way. And this is the person who usually does this presentation with me, Michael Dila. Um, great shot. Uh, it took me about 20 minutes to find that one. I think that uh, that's, uh, that's Michael in a nutshell. Um, brilliant guy, um, and he's uh, one of the partners at Torch Partnership that we uh, often work very closely with, um, including on the development of uh, this concept of innovation parkour. So... Uh, Today, what I want to do is uh, a bunch of different things. I'm going to ramble about innovation. There's probably few places more appropriate to ramble about innovation uh, than Mars. Um, If you understand Mars and understand their mandate, innovation is very central to what they do. I'm going to talk a little bit about parkour. Some of you may know what parkour is. Some of you may not. Some of you may have no idea why I'm trying to link parkour with innovation and possibly that experience design stuff. So I'm going to try and make some not-too-spurious connections, but I make no guarantees. Uh, I'm going to talk about the seeds of a practice. Um, We'll get into that a little bit later, but uh, this is very much uh, in the prototyping phase, uh, and what we've been doing increasingly is prototyping it with live audiences, and there'll be a little bit of that at the end of this. Uh, And then we're going to interview one of the world's first practicing innovation parkourists, Uh, and then after that we'll have uh, five minutes of uh, co-creation at the end where I'm going to... Uh, get your thoughts, your feedback, and hopefully we can start to incorporate some of that into the practice as we build it. Uh, so how many people think innovation is fun? Yeah, that's bullshit <laughs> get those get those hands down. Um, innovation hurts uh, it hurts a lot. Um, I spent with uh, a number of people uh, in the crowd here uh, a number of months last year, burning through about two and a half million dollars a month on um, an innovation project for a big, big company. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a lot of money to spend per month on innovation. I think they went through probably close to $10 million uh, before it failed, and that hurt a lot. Um, now, that being said, uh, it doesn't mean that the work is not valuable, but often um, people's expectations around innovation and how it's delivered, uh, very different. So. I'm going to talk to you here about our premise of this concept of innovation parkour. And we're asserting that people can learn to innovate. Uh, It's not just doing innovation and hoping it works. We think people can actually learn to innovate on a consistent basis in your work environments that totally suck. Um, We specifically believe that you can get better at innovation by practicing it, duh. This is is something that should be very obvious to us, but something in our uh, daily work and our daily lives, more importantly, that we don't actually consider. Uh, How many people know what innovation is? That's a good answer. (laughs) Um, I'm not really sure either. There's a a ton of uh, suggestions. Uh, Michael and I really like what Saul Kaplan uh, from Business Innovation Factory says. Uh, He says that innovation creates a better way to deliver value. Follow him. I'm going to talk about, uh, very briefly, and kind of loop back on them, three myths of innovation. It's expensive. It takes a long time uh, and it can only be done by special kinds of people. I've already shown you the bullshit slide, so I'll skip it. I really believe, and and as Michael and I are developing this um, with other people, that innovation uh, needs insight. Uh, And insight is a critical part. And we're not talking about insight as, wow, that's a cool thing to discover. We're talking about real, honest-to-goodness insight, things that help you think differently, help you reframe, help you uh, understand problems from new perspectives. So, how many of you are familiar with parkour? Good, So see you'll like this. Um, turn up the volume maybe. So this is parkour. Parkour is a uh, physical practice that was developed over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, starting in Europe and then going across the world. It's really about uh, the negotiation uh, and relationship that people have in a physical way with the built environment. Um, I'm going to stop talking for a second. I just want you to watch what these people do, how they think about the world that they live in and exist in and what they do with it. So we think this is what innovation should feel like. This is what innovation should look like. And this is how we should think about and practice innovation. It's about flow. It's about discipline. It's about understanding that there are no obstacles, or better yet, uh, understanding that you can use obstacles. And obstacles are actually the constraints that allow you to uh, make better value. In this case, personal enjoyment of negotiating an environment In a business environment, it might be the negotiation of some of the obstacles you have and actually the use of them in order to create innovation as opposed to seeing them specifically as barriers. Uh, We love this quote by Bruce Lee. There are no limits, there are plateaus, but you must not stay there, you must go beyond them. A man must constantly exceed his level. Um, Parkour uh, and other practices that we'll talk about in a bit um, are all about uh, exceeding your level, they're about never stopping, they're unfinished disciplines. And so for us, uh, innovation parkour is the notion of parkour um, in some loose way applied to helping us understand how to innovate better. Um, And we've been trying to describe it in a number of different ways. One of those is uh, talking about a a pedagogy or a way of learning for volatility, um, a way of dealing with the complexity of the environments that we work in and live in, and actually not just being successful, um, but attaining uh, great outcomes. We also think that... uh, this practice we're starting to develop is social software, uh, and by that I mean um, it's something that you do with other people. You are the code. Uh, this is not uh, this is not something where um, you read a, read a book of rules, you go into a meeting, you follow that stuff, and you're done. This is about existing. This is about constantly rewriting, refactoring your code to become better at what you do. Hey, it's Will Evans. Well, Will Evans, everybody. Um, We're all familiar uh, with the choice made here. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to do. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you
2: how deep the rabbit hole goes.
1: So depending on what pill you take, you can either decide uh, that what I'm saying and what I will continue to say is uh, a complete uh, crock, in which case you can happily go about your life, uh, or you can actually um, explore with us whether something's there and see how, how deep the rabbit hole goes. Um, and here's why I think you need to, th- uh, you need to join us in this sense. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau says, Man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. Um, how many of you work in environments like these? They start to become more familiar as we go. Uh, This is uh, pretty painful when you uh, actually think about it. And we've learned this over the years, that routinized work produces efficient and predictable outcomes. Um, But what happens when things become unpredictable? Um, Unpredictability exists all around us. It's happening to us on a daily basis. The structures and processes we have just don't work all the time. When unpredictable stuff happens, you have to have a way of dealing with it. So the question I ask is, in the face of unpredictability, how likely is it that people won't panic? I'm going to tell you two stories that hopefully will illuminate some points uh, and start to give you a picture of where our thinking is. I'm not going to give away all the answers. Um, People who know me know that I love to talk about flying and pilots for a number of different reasons. How many of you are old enough to remember the Gimli Glider? Okay. Canadians in the room, you've revealed yourselves. Uh, Gimli Glider uh, was an Air Canada flight on the way to uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba in 1983. Captain Bob Pearson at the controls, um, and they lost uh, power to both engines. They ran out of fuel um, about 150, 200 miles um, from the airport, and they realized they weren't going to make it. So they scanned the uh, area around them and uh, discovered there was an abandoned... uh, runway um, in a town not too far away. And so they decided to try and make it there. They did make it. Um, The problem was uh, Captain Bob came in way too fast, and he was uh, about ready to crash the plane. And not only that, um, but it turns out the abandoned uh, airstrip had been turned into a go-kart track, and it was family race day. And so there were people zipping around, It was was, was really not good. So he's coming in way too fast, this huge 100,000 pound plus uh, plane, and he has no power. He has nothing to do. Uh, And in a moment, a flash of insight, uh, Captain Bob realizes that he's not flying an airplane, he's flying a glider. And he immediately uh, switches, uh, without any prior thought of this, uh, and treats the plane like a glider, throws it into a slide slide slip, drops altitude and speed, uh, and lands the plane perfectly outside of the uh, landing gear. Uh, on the front, failing. Uh, no injuries, plane was back on the uh, tarmac, ready to go in a couple days. So Captain Bob made uh, a decision based on insight in a moment. This one might be more familiar to uh, those of us who are uh, a little bit younger uh, or our friends south of the border, although what's a border with Twitter these days? Um, let's see here. You all remember this, right? This was uh, back in February, I believe. How did this happen? Uh, you read up on the uh, statistics and, and water landings um, are pretty much uh, you're going to be dead. I mean, you've taken a look at the life jackets they put in those under your seat. Do they expect you to float in those? They don't. Um, this is uh, this is Captain uh, Chelsea Sullenberger, uh, the person responsible for um, accomplishing the impossible and landing that plane on the water. Um, no loss of life. He should have panicked in that situation. I mean, that's, uh, that's a bad place to be in. Why didn't he panic? Well, one of the things that uh, pilots do over and over and over is they practice um, how to ignore their fear um, and how to make quick, complicated decisions in that type of space. They've actually recognized the constraints in their environment. And instead of saying, wow, um, we're just gonna um, pretend that uh, we're all, nothing will go wrong, and you know, if it does, we're dead, Instead, they recognize the constraints, embrace the constraints, and train themselves to take advantage of constraints and use decision-making processes that lead them to better success or better value. Sounds like real-time innovation to me. Um, Light like crews don't panic because they have practiced staying calm. Um, I'm a uh, big military strategy geek, and uh, one of my uh, favorite military strategists is this um, guy named John Boyd. And he says, he who handles the quickest rate of change survives. Uh, And I think this notion is extremely important in the context of innovation, uh, both at the uh, organizational level and also at the individual level. Um, Boyd has a concept called the OODA loop. Uh, It's an awful name. It's a fantastic concept. And essentially what he's done, in some ways, he's actually um, mapped out the same thought process that a parkourist has going through their head, uh, except he's applied it to uh, fighter pilots and uh, military strategy. Um, When a pilot is flying in the air, um, and they are trying to deal with a complex um, problem that just popped up, they don't think through this. They have practiced thinking in this way so many times that their decisions become automatic. Uh, they can innovate, they can, uh, um, they can come up with new, more valuable ways of, in their case, surviving. You know, and that's uh, probably the toughest type of design that you ever have to do, real-time design for survival. Parkour, uh, in a lot of ways, is uh, the same as I've said. You know, there are all kinds of inputs that the individual brings as they negotiate the environment. Now, parkour, uh, obviously, in some cases, um, a little or less risk, um, but the processes are true, and the practice that the parkourists do over and over and over um, is something that allows them to um, negotiate obstacles in a way um, that is not only um, simple, but also creative. So this is for uh, Will Evans, who can't show up now. Um, but this is uh, this is the 62nd MacGuffin. Um, how many of you are familiar with uh, uh, Hugh Diverly, Paul Pangaro? Um, really interesting uh, folks. They did uh, um, a really interesting uh, piece of work with a gentleman called Usman Hawk, uh, talking about. Um, what is interaction and talking about interaction design. Um, And what they're actually talking about was cybernetics. And uh, to quote our friend Paul Pangaro, he once said, I thought cybernetics was freezing dead people. Um, (laughs) But it's not. Um, What cybernetics is, is cybernetics is the study of goal-directed systems, and if we look at cybernetics and the notion of learning, and the notion of learning um, with other people, uh, that's actually a model for a conversation. Um, And I'm going to suggest as a hypothesis, not something we've actually been able to prove yet, um, that there's a relationship between uh, decision-making processes, uh, conversational interactions, um, and the ability to what John Boyd called plate the bird uh, or innovate in real time. So I'm going to ask, is is innovation a conversation with constraints? Um, uh, Is it uh, it something that uh, that we actually have to do over and over and over? And if we are going to have that conversation over and over and over, does it make sense to practice it? So parkour is not about running and climbing, but it really is about navigating uncertainty in real time. And these are things that we start to need to bring into uh, the way that we practice uh, experience design, design planning, uh, whatever you do in your day-to-day work. Uh, the question, and this is a question Michael and I have as well, is how do we get there? Uh, or more importantly, how do we innovate? How do we actually make innovation something that's uh, consistent? How do we make something uh, that just works? One of the things that we've uh, started to recognize in our research is that there's this notion of a ladder of skills. And you've all heard uh, 10,000 hours to become uh, an expert at this or that. Uh, we look at uh, at least four levels in the uh, in the ladder of skills. The notion of unconscious incompetence, you don't know what you don't know. The notion of conscious incompetence, you know what you don't know. Conscious competence, you know what you know. And then unconscious competence, you don't need to know because you know. The question is, um, what lies beyond unconscious competence? There's something past that. Uh, And we recognize that that is mastery. Uh, And in terms of innovation and the practice of innovation, uh, this is the goal that we should be striving for. So I'm going to go back to the topic of insight and put a proposition in front of you. Innovation favors the prepared mind. Um, There's a lot of brain science research that you can dig into uh, around this. Uh, Don't have the time or the uh, brain power today to cover that. Um, but I'm going to suggest that having a prepared mind allows us to navigate uncertainty. Boris Becker, tennis, anyone here play tennis? Yeah, a couple people. Um, if you've watched Boris or um, some of the more contemporary players play, uh, their mastery, they're beyond unconscious uh, competence, they just do it. There was uh, who was the player the other day? Um, uh, hit the ball between his legs to win the game. Yeah. That's, that's innovation. That's what you're looking for. Right? He just didn't do that because he was desperate. He did that because he needed to do something that would provide the value required to, in this case, um, succeed. Tennis is full of drills. If you uh, know people who uh, play tennis or have aspired to play professional tennis, they spend uh, all their free time practicing. And there's an important reason they practice and the, and the, and the drills are repetitive and re- relentless because they teach the body to think um, so that your mind can do strategy. Uh, And this is a place that we as practitioners of design and hopefully um, people who can make innovation work, this is where we need to start getting to. Uh, We need to teach the body to think uh, so our mind can do the strategy. This is yoga. Uh, People here do yoga, I'm sure. Look at the hands go up, great. Um, There's nothing secret about yoga. Everybody gets it. but it's a bottomless practice. Um, you, can never, you can never truly, truly, truly uh, run out of ways to improve your practice in yoga. And this is how we need to start to think about innovation. Innovation is not something that you go into a room and do. Innovation is something you practice and practice and practice and practice until you get good at it. You never, ever um, get the innovation badge, uh, but it is also a bottomless practice. So coming back to the notion of insight, Um, Each of these practices is about the synthesis of uh, flow and repertoire, um, being in a certain state of mind with the tools um, and the training that allow you to utilize those in real time unconsciously uh, to create new value. Uh, And we're calling this a kinocognitive cognitive model. Um, It's a model where doing and thinking are the same. Uh, And we're not saying that in a literal uh, you draw something and. uh, and uh, it's thinking and doing it. It's actually a little more nuanced than that. I'll try to represent that um, with some of the stuff we've done. So suggesting that flow and repertoire um, is insight, it's innovation. Uh, and I want to go back to the three myths here. So I said, you know, innovation is expensive, takes a long time, it can only be done by special kinds of people, and this is BS. Innovation um, is cheap. It can be done quickly. uh, And it can be done by anyone. Um, But what we know but easily forget uh, is that we have to practice. Um, You can't just think about it and become a good innovator. You have to practice. You have to practice, do the drills, the repetitions, so that uh, you can develop um, the muscle memory, so to speak. So this is where we're at right now. We're talking about figuring out this question, or at least exploring it. How do you practice innovation? Uh, And what we're doing, uh, Michael and I and other people, uh, is we're uh, starting to begin a practice. um, And this practice uh, of innovation parkour actually exists um, in something we call the unfinished kernel. Uh, The unfinished kernel is um, a model uh, of how a number of different things fit together uh, to help us work through uh, complex, unpredictable environments that never actually are finished. Um, I think that, I'm not going to use the wicked problems term. That's really pretentious these days. Um, we're going through many, many iterations of this. Uh, we've uh, iterated through this with other people. It's a process of understanding um, what a framework for practicing innovation might look like. Um, we are sure of a few things. Um, one. Visualization is important. Why is visualization as one of the core skill sets important for innovation? Um, Because it allows us to practice seeing. Um, Practicing seeing uh, is critical, especially um, when you're talking about insight, when you're talking about reframing, and very tactical things that you can do um, uh, in terms of of actually helping innovation happen. We also think that uh, innovation is all about collaboration. Increasingly, um, it's not and it never was about the lone person uh, in the room. And it's not about one person up at the whiteboard. Uh, It's about people working together as groups. And so, if innovation is about collaboration, you need to practice trust. Um, It's not practicing working together, it's practicing trusting other people. Um, You need to drill uh, and go through repetitions to teach you how to practice trust with people if you're gonna innovate with them. Uh, It's about participation, obviously. Um, You will not innovate if you don't have participation from all parties. And that's practicing openness. And this is something that's probably very challenging for some of us in our work environments. Um, Being open uh, is sometimes risky. You know, there are a lot of risks in organizations around being open with ideas, approaches, uh, things like that. But all the same, we need to start thinking about how do we practice openness. Uh, And finally, innovation. It's about practicing freedom. And this is what Innovation Parkour is all about in a lot of ways. As part of this unfinished kernel, uh, or this core of code, um, that helps us think about creating value, we need to practice this freedom. So to put it really simply, if your boss says, what was that Innovation Parkour thing about? You say, it's a practice for generating insight on demand. And they go, wow, cool. Can you do that tomorrow? you say, of course. Right? Just write that down. now uh, what I'm going to do um, is to hopefully illuminate a little bit better what we're trying to do with this and some of the waves we've started prototyping the practice is I'm going to talk a little bit about um, an exercise we actually did at Mars here a few months ago um, where we had about 40 people in a room uh, and we did some prototyping of uh, what the drills look like in the wild and some of the people in the room were actually here. Um, and what we did was we, uh, we, uh, we said, you know, if part of doing innovation is design, and part of great design is really understanding how to negotiate obstacles or, in design language, um, deal with constraints. How do we practice freedom or innovation by embracing obstacles? So Michael, uh, tell this us is Michael. Innovation He's going to tell us a little bit. Um, can you turn it up? Guess not. Let's go back once more. Michael's actually going to talk a little bit about uh, what we tried to do with the group, and then uh, and then we'll go and do a little bit of a uh, Michael, uh, dive us into uh, it more. Innovation Park Innovation
2: Park is
1: program. I'm going to try this once more and crank it up on my end. Apologies, folks. <laughs> Michael, uh, tell us uh, about Innovation Park Work.
2: Innovation Parkour is a program to train individuals and teams to develop a a prepared mind for innovation. Uh, So who should go to this thing? Anyone for whom innovation is important, uh, for whom innovation is uh, essential to the growth or development of their company or organization.
1: Uh, And what are people going to learn from us?
2: People are going to learn how to use things like visual language, collaboration, participation, and design techniques to develop a prepared mind for innovation. Uh,
1: bottom line, what's the morning look like for people to come?
2: What it's going to look like is a scavenger hunt. What it's going to feel like is another question. What we hope is that people are going to experience a sense of freedom uh, that is not part of their normal workday, and that that experience is going to give rise to insight.
1: So uh, so that's what we did. We. Uh, we decided that we are going to try and train people to be better innovators by sending them on a scavenger hunt, Um, which sounds absolutely crazy. um, But when you think about um, a tennis drill, for example, or the way in which fighter pilots uh, train um, maneuvers over and over and over, um, you can start to develop um, a pattern library or a library of things to practice. And what we actually did uh, was we decided to practice a couple things specifically uh, this notion of teaching the body to think um, by linking um, the the physical and the uh, uh, cognitive elements of uh, of our bodies together. So there were six teams, there was one hour, uh, and they had to create one experience. The goal was actually to um, have have every team go away um, and develop a um, kind of a service design experience uh, for the Discovery District, which is um, a large area uh, around the Mars building, which is actually um, one of the uh, largest medical research uh, zones in the world. And uh, what we did was we said to people, um, you need to go out, you need to develop this, you need to bring back proof um, that you saw all parts of the Discovery District and specific parts, you have to come back with video or pictures or something else, you've got an hour. So this this does not mean that you can spend the entire time Uh, sitting down and planning things out. You actually just have to go do it. In some ways, this was actually uh, the same as saying to the pilots, uh, well, your engines are dead. Do something about it now. We said, you're going to have to go to all these places. You're not going to be able to sit around. You're going to have to do this as you go. Uh, And So this was an experiment. We were very upfront with uh, folks about the fact that we were um, trying to develop essentially what amounts to a tennis drill for innovation um, uh, at their expense. Now, instead of me talking about, uh, how many people remember this guy, Arsenio Hall? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) about five hands go up. Um, I've just revealed how old I am. Uh, Arsenio Hall was a talk show host in the early uh, 90s, and instead of uh, me telling you more about what the experience was like, I actually decided probably better for me to interview someone who participated um, and who has since gone on to add to the practice of innovation parkour um, and start to develop drills on their own based on the thinking we've done. Um, We're trying to open source this thing. Um, It's not not about us spending the next 15 years figuring it out all ourselves. It's not how it works. It will never work that way. So this is uh, some of the co-creation that happened with this individual. Um, Tonight's special guest, Dennis Schleicher, Jr. (laughs) Hello. How are we doing for time, by the way? Time check? Tennis, Perfect. Thanks, Dennis. Uh, no no coffee? No. Nope, <laughs> Sorry. Nope. Um, so a couple of things. Uh, first, I wanted to uh, just get your uh, impressions uh, of what the exercise was like and what you got out of it. As someone who's done a lot of thinking on this uh, topic, um, I just want to really get your perspective on what you felt happened. Um, what was valuable to you?
2: Uh, the value was actually feeling the panic set in as you started. Uh, for the first couple of minutes, uh, maybe even just seconds, you're here like, okay, we have an hour. What, what can we do? Um, and you had uh, to go out to physically see these places. So you're here like, oh, geez, all right, we have to get out. We have to do a mile circuit. And very quickly, you realize that you can't sit down and, and just talk about it uh, so we started to get up and as we were moving, we didn't exactly know where we were going to go. we started to talk so we were moving and firing at the same time uh, trying to to evolve it
1: so uh, so let me ask you this you talked about the uh, the, uh, the identi- identification of panic as something you went through what other types of Um, emotions or states of mind um, did the team go through? What types of behaviors did you see um, as people kind of struggled to work against these constraints and actually come back and present a finished product in an hour?
2: Uh, To be very honest, there was, you know, some difficulty because you want to figure out, okay, who's in charge? Who do you follow? We had some constraints such as we weren't allowed to go off uh, single individuals. We had to stay at least in pairs. So we had a larger group. We could we were able to split up into two smaller groups and do some of the activities. But we were trying to figure out, okay, what do we want to do? What's the big idea? How do we uh, wrap ourselves in this and perhaps uh, divide up our tasks uh, to be able to accomplish it within the, the, the biggest constraint was the time.
1: And, uh, and did you find that your, your group was, uh, was constantly um, uh, concerned with the constraints or at some point did the constraints drop
2: away? Um, how did they feel about that? Uh, I think for the first probably about, remember this is an hour, Uh, (laughs) so about the first five to ten minutes, uh, we we were doing a little bit of, uh, uh, of juggling and figuring out what we wanted to do, and it's like, okay, let's go with an idea for a little while and see if, you know, how far we can push it, and if it doesn't seem to be working, we can retrench uh, trying to also make sure that uh, whatever we, we're doing that we're collecting enough material so that we could um, deploy it in a different manner. So we took lots of pictures as we were going around town trying to, to create this tour. Uh, the idea was within an hour to create a tour that would take uh, visitors to this area around the uh, Innovation District.
1: So uh, so let me ask you this, um, during uh, the exercise obviously focusing on the task at hand, Afterwards, um, what kind of uh, uh, things came out in your reflection on this exercise? And more importantly, what actually um, made you feel that it was
2: important enough to you to uh, try this on your own? Uh, the group, I thought, gelled very well. Um, we had the rough patch in the beginning, and then we just started to, to let ideas flow, uh, to go out there and, and work with the constraints. Um, realize, okay, we really do have to be back in an hour. Uh, you know, Matthew's really going to hold us to that. He was very serious. Uh, I can be a real jerk. <laughs> so, so it was that, and then the ability for us to, uh, uh, you know, I'm not. It's not letting your guard down. It's not being more honest. But it, it was like, all right, get rid of the crap um, and put ideas out. And the ideas, I think, came to more of the forefront. Um, uh rather than uh different personalities mm-hmm. and, and it it was as as you put it, you know it's a certain way of being yeah um or or acting, which had to do an awful lot with the walking around them. Um, I don't know the connection,
1: yeah, so let me ask you uh ask you this because uh we need to make time for our musical guest um, <laughs> we uh uh, I want to uh, I want to understand um, two things. What motivated you to say I'm going to try this on my own, and then uh, talk a little bit about uh, how you went and did this on your own with another group, and, and what you changed, what you tried to improve to make the practice of this better.
2: Okay. Well, I'm I'm a big believer in um, uh, the concept of requisite variety. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so if I if we would task you all with the you know go and invent a better fork. And you would go back and you say, oh yeah, they got got four tins. Let's put five tins on. Let's put six tins on, right? That's a simplistic way of, of innovating. Oh, you can eat more food. You can eat it faster. Isn't that great? Uh, but if you you know lots of different ways of going about doing something, uh, such as, oh, you could do it with chopstick, like the Chinese. Ah, oh, the Ethiopians eat it with flatbread. Oh, uh, royalty, don't eat at all. Somebody else feeds them. Having that extra variety of ways of, of approaching a problem, or, you know, and seeing what the, what the solution is, I think allows us to innovate even more. So I, I, I see, you know, um, uh, the innovation parkour as a way to, to explore and to practice in a, in a safe environment or a less non-risky uh, environment. Uh, many ways of seeing or, or being creative, and it's having those obstacles uh, are, are key to that experience. You want to have some sort of limit. We all, I mean, that's why you're you're talking about, you know, with with JJR, you know, living in chains, you know, born in freedom. uh, You know, that, we we always live within walls. Most of the walls that we live on, live in, are, you know, if we would start walking to them, it would take our lifetime plus one day. We're not going to get there. So we have to artificially bring these walls together, um, just like wall walkers. You know, if you bring two walls close enough together, you can shimmy up them with both of your legs and, and rise to the top, how do we find these these obstacles and bring them close enough so that we can think about things in new ways? And the walking around and being together with people, going to these different places, um, you know, the, the, the existentialist standing up of the essence with you and people working together. is is like a, and if this is too far, um, an epistemic game where these people together, they don't have each answer all themselves, but working together in a group, they're able to bring, for somehow, some reason, their tacit knowledge, uh, you know, starts to come out and come together, and the solutions are absolutely incredible. It's, you know based on collaboration, people coming together, each having maybe part of the solution or part of the idea, and then not just the people, but the different places or spaces in which they're playing. That comes up, and you know, going around to these places, you can't imagine the stereotype of what that monument is. That's just too easy. You're going to the actual place. You see what's there, what works, what doesn't, and it's in in your face. So I I think that aspect of of being there in person and working with the other people, both combine incredibly to, to, Allows us to do design that's not the synthetic, logical thought of, oh, first this step, then this step, kind of a recipe. But it, it's something that's you're opening up the refrigerator door and what's for dinner, you know, with what you have.
1: So you, uh, you ran this yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so down at uh, SCAD, uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, uh, Bob Fee and, and Chris Miller, uh, Chris is somebody I went to uh, school with, and uh, she uh, teaches in innovation. And went down there and uh, worked with a graduate class of design managers. So these are all people who are going to be managing design groups. And we thought it would be a great idea to try and take them through this this exercise. Um, how do? And they worked with undergrads. So those were their their you know. So it was a kind of like a, a teach the teacher, you know, train the trainer uh, kind of approach. And and I did something perhaps a little bit different. I tried to uh, prepare their mind. So I, I, I went over three different um, uh, inspirations, right? I went over uh, "Things Fall Apart" by uh, Chinua uh, Akabi, um who was a famous uh, uh, African writer uh, who was able to break stereotypes and write about things in a very honest way. You know that, that honesty, seeing things for as they are, uh, brought in Peter Drucker with his emphasis. You know, and he's a radical. You know, the management people hated him for the longest time, not that he's, dead, he's okay. Um, he brought in the importance of reflection, right, and, and oh, you see the things, you know, how do you bring it together, and um, the idea uh, from uh, writing and poetry about the tiger and the bull, right, and, and this is the, 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 you talked about, you know, in control and also being out of control, and they say for the best poetry, you, you don't want to be completely in control, if you are such a master of the language and such a master of the of the grammar, your poetry will be very well written, but it will have no, no soul. And if you're completely out of control, there might be a lot of energy there, but it might not make any sense. So it's this strange tension of being able to hold on to the bull, you know, or the tiger, and you're not quite sure if you're in control or the tigers in control, and that's what happens in parkour. It's that you have to have the freedom also to let go of yourself, um, which helps with the other people there because they're they're just as important as you are. And nobody's in charge. There's no leaders. You didn't say you're the leader of this group, which was another beautiful thing. You didn't talk about that, but you know that that was a, another constraint that people lived with. You know, and and how do you bring that if you want to call it tension? Uh, you know into a resolution and and work with it, but you don't want to be in control all the time. So how do you find that creativity and that freedom? I think you practice. You you practice. I think you
1: practice. Um, Tonight's musical guest is you. I think maybe we have how many minutes? Two, three minutes? Two minutes? Three minutes? Want to throw this question out to uh, the group because um, we're in the process of building this, uh, and still at the very early stages. I want to get some feedback and thoughts from you and a very specific question. What do you think training drills look like um, to help you innovate? What kind of things do you think would be helpful for you to practice over and over and over in your teams in order to become better at all these things, in order to uh, reach that state where um, you have have flow and repertoire and are able to create new things, better value? Um, Thoughts? Yeah, go ahead. What would you practice? Thanks, Russ.
0: Um, I think uh, variations is like pretty important, as you said, and uh, uh, feedback is like pretty critical. Uh, you you try to come up with as many different variations as possible, and then like get feedback on uh, each of the variations and what was right in each one and what was wrong. And uh, I think that's pretty much you do.
1: I I totally agree. I mean, I think one of the things, um, and I may get stoned. Um, by you for saying this, but one of the things we, as people who uh, work in the designer experience design field, can all practice more um, is is the critique process and how to um, give good feedback to people. It's a critical part of doing great design. Um, Sam, usually usually you uh, you have a good good. What should so we nice practice? Hi, I'm
3: Russ. Nice to meet you. Uh, one of the things I think that's really important is speaking truth to power. Yeah. Uh, it's really difficult for people to do that. And uh, the one, one of the great things that I've been practicing with some of my clients is getting them to physically speak to strangers <laughs> about non, non-competitive, non-interesting, non-related um, experiences or products. So it's not like I'm, you know, it's a toy designer and I'm making them talk to people who are buying toys. It's a toy designer and I'm making them talk to people who who are shopping for groceries, whatever it is, and ask them, physically ask them in the place at that time and get them to tell them what they don't like. They get used to it and then they can hear it regularly about their toys. Yes. Um, so truth to power in the physical visceral sense. I liked especially what you said about you have to physically feel the panic. Yeah. Um, you do have to physically feel the panic before you can actually learn the skill. It has to live in your body and make you uncomfortable. So when people go out and they practice that skill, they get very anxious, um, it's very difficult, um, but they learn from that.
1: Practice staying calm. Uh, one more, We've got time for one, one more, break. one more. Thanks for us. Uh, Matt. All right. And while we're doing Sorry. this, we'll let our next
4: speaker step. Hey, thanks. Go ahead. So uh, there, there's a couple. Interesting things. One is that there are some practices we already do uh, that could easily be sort of reframed to be part of this type of practice. Things like um, like improvised design slams, where you're given a very tangible problem and a group of people you've never worked with before and a set of constraints, and you're just like, you have half an hour to solve it. Um, Even something like the game that we played earlier, the card game, um, could be adapted. To, to sort of encourage this type of rapid thinking and panic, that time constraint. Um, I was going to say, so I was at the the previous workshop and, and that form of tangible panic, that, you know, you when you're on the street running around and no one's organized and you don't know what you're producing, It's it, it's there's an adrenaline rush and the adrenaline makes you think about things in a different way, um, which I've gotten in, yeah, design slams, things like, like um, uh, active brainstorms or what people are now calling body storming. For, Term thrown around. Um,
1: so, yeah. Anyway, that's it. Great. Thank you, everyone. Uh, if you want, if you have more questions or suggestions, please uh, feel free to grab me uh, afterwards or in the hall. And, um, and those of you who answered questions, not to Trump Matthew, grab a book, please. Thank you for your participation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Grab a book. Come on up. Thank you.
0: To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IDEA conference, point your browser to boxesnarrows.com and click on the podcast link there you'll find access to the itunes feed and more information about each presentation our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the fourth annual idea conference the presenters and of course to the global community we look forward to feedback about future episodes that would be of greatest value to you
3: our listeners